NFR Extra follows all your favorite cowboys, interviews legends of rodeo, and talks to the best of country music. Follow Nevada Caldwell, Ryland Bentley, and Steve Godert every week as they delve deep into the stories behind the road to gold in Vegas at the National Finals Rodeo. It's revealing, comedic, and sometimes emotional. Find it on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. NFR Extra, all dirt, all rodeo, all year. This is NFR Extra, episode 53. We keep rolling through the summer during the pandemic and keeping the conversation going in the Western lifestyle and rodeo industry. The PRCA contestants are gearing up for Cowboy Christmas in July, and so are we with the guests we got lined up today. It's not every day we have rodeo royalty on NFR Extra, but we certainly do today. We get to talk to Karen Rosser from the Flying U Rodeo. Our good friend Dale Brisby sits down with 2019 world champion team roper Wesley Thorpe for seven and seven. That's seven questions in seven minutes. Then we up our horsemanship knowledge when we sit down with Chris Cox from Chris Cox Horsemanship. And what a difference in personalities from our last horse expert, Clinton Anderson. But up next, we have Brylan Bentley's Rodeo News of the Week. This is Brylan's Bull, the Rodeo News of the Week. PRCA Stat of the Week. Six is the number of rodeos that will air or stream on the Cowboy Channel and or the Cowboy Channel Plus app through the 4th of July weekend. This list consists of the world's oldest rodeo, Black Hill Roundup, Cody Stampede, Belton, the 4th of July Celebration Rodeo, Sitting Bull Stampede, and Oakley Independence Day Rodeo. Bull rider Bailey Warden captured the win in CrossFit, Arkansas with 87 and a half point ride on Pete Carr's Pro Rodeo Concho Lizard. Shad Mayfield is chasing an all-around title from tie-down to team roping. He has his 2020 goal set. The Canadian Professional Rodeo Association, Westerner Park and Deer and District Chamber of Commerce made the decision to postpone this year's Canadian Final Rodeo until 2021. Cowboy Christmas is running full speed, and myself in Las Vegas events wishes all contestants good luck, stay healthy, and let's rodeo. Each year at Cowboy Christmas, more than a quarter million country western shoppers mingle with NFR contestants, Flint Rasmussen, and the best junior cowboys and cowgirls in the world. There's no place in sports where your rodeo heroes find time to meet and greet their fans 9 to 5 every day. Cowboy Christmas. It's shopping, live music, rodeo, and so much more. Book your reservations and find out more at NFRExperience.com. Cowboy Christmas. It's all here. My name is Cotton Ross from Marysville, California. Welcome to NFR Extra. Today, Karen Rosser joins NFR Extra. Karen is the wife of legendary stock contractor Cotton Rosser of Flying U Rodeo Company, the oldest rodeo company in the world and the major supplier of rodeo stock in the United States. There isn't much Karen has accomplished in the Western lifestyle, serving as the first president of the Utah Junior Quarter Horse Association winning Miss Rodeo Utah, serving on the PRCA Executive Board, an inductee into the National Cowboy and Western Heritage and the PRCA Hall of Fame. We will talk to Karen about growing up as a rodeo queen, 
fallen in love with Cotton Rosser, her involvement with the NFR in the early days of Las Vegas, and much, much more. Welcome to NFR Extra Karen Rosser. How are you doing? Well, we're doing fine in California. So good to hear from everyone. Yeah, I hear you on that. Uh, Karen, I've had an opportunity to work with you for quite a few years um, as I was working with the Flying New Rodeo Company. But prior to that, you have had some history um, with rodeo when you were growing up back in Utah. Is that correct? Yes, I was. Uh, I'm a former Miss Rodeo Utah. And so I had a little bit of rodeo background, but uh, not as much as I've uh, gathered over the last 40 plus years. <laughs> During that time of being Miss Rodeo Utah, what was it like traveling then compared to how you guys would travel now? Uh, well, um, I guess uh, you had to... Uh, work a lot harder to be invited to different events and and uh, I was very fortunate that my parents wanted us to get out and see more of not just Utah but all the other states and so I was able to travel to Ohio to the Quarter Horse Congress to San Diego uh, to the uh, fair in San Diego uh, it was all different uh, different events but they basically were tied to rodeo so um i've always said that uh, being a a miss rodeo utah miss rodeo california miss rodeo marysville stampede are all a uh, a good thing for young women because it makes them go out and speak to different people and to learn how to interact in different situations and um, I wouldn't change that for for anything. I got a question for you because this is something I've learned and, and Karen just to be kind of we always got to clarify this I'm not necessarily the rodeo ranching horse person here I'm the always the city guy that gets to host this podcast but fortunately we have folks like Steve and Brylin who, who've grown up in this but I've learned a lot along the way, being a part of the NFR, being a part of Las Vegas events and, and, and living at Cowboy Christmas during uh, December. Um, mm-hmm. So the, the Miss Rodeo part is a little different from other, let's just call them pageants when we're talking about for, for the female side of things. Uh, how was that for you? And as I'm looking here, you know, you're, you're excelled in what Western and English writing. How did those things kind of intertwine to you growing up and, and your horsemanship of, well, just being a youth at that time. I and mean, where was your passion of all that? I mean, did that just drive you to where, to be involved with the Western lifestyle? Well, um, I grew up with three younger sisters and uh, my father was uh, smart enough to get us all involved with horses. And living in Utah, uh, you know, Utah has the greatest snow. And uh, when I was in high school, all of my friends were were skiers. And I went home one day and I told my dad that I thought I might like to take up skiing. And he said, well, then, you know, the horse thing will have to go either one or the other. But uh, the more I thought about it, horses you can do all year round. 
Um, when we were growing up, we showed quarter horses during the summer. And then in the winter, my dad uh, had uh, a couple teams of cutter horses. And so every Saturday, he'd load us all up in the, the pickup and we go to the cutter races and, and he assigned each one of us a horse. And that was the horse that we helped hook up and cool out and were responsible for. So he, he was a pretty smart man in keeping his family involved in all the things that we all enjoyed. And uh, so through the showing quarter horses, um, I rode to uh, the Western and the English. And so there were uh, some trainers that needed to get points on horses in different events. So they would come to me and ask me if I would ride their horse to see if I could get some points for them in the English. And uh, so I became accustomed to riding different horses. And um, then college time came around and I had planned to go to college and um, my dad, uh, I was talking to him about, you know, taking the horse and he said, well, you can't take a horse to college, no way. So I wound up staying home and the Miss Rodeo Ogden contest came up and I decided, well, that's something else I can do with the horse. So I entered Miss Rodeo Ogden and then went on to the Miss Rodeo Utah contest and won that. And then went on to Miss Rodeo America where I was first runner up. The uh, year before, Miss Rodeo Utah, Connie Della Lucia won Miss Rodeo America. So I had a good role model there. Um, the following year, I, when I gave up my title as Miss Rodeo Utah, um, I wound up crowning my younger sister. And so we were back-to-back um, -back sisters winning the title of Miss Rodeo Utah. And um, I didn't... I didn't really uh, compete in the uh, WPRA in any way. Um, in the quarter horse shows, they had events, you know, for barrel racing, pole bending. So I'm, I'm, you know, was familiar with that. But uh, um, my focus was on making an all-around horse. So. Yeah, I, I got a good question because there's a there's a question to follow that's come from Steve that I think will set this up, but. As I know, that world's always right around the rodeo business, right? And there's stock contractors and things like that. Did You probably didn't know that there was some foreshadowing going on there for the rest of your life to come, right? I mean, is that something that... No. <laughs> yeah. No, I did not think of that in that term. <laughs> no, but uh, uh, the way I met Cotton was, um, of course, at a rodeo. And uh, when I was Miss Rodeo Utah, I made it a point to all the rodeos that I visited to go up and uh, talk to the announcer to let them know that I was there and to give them a little bio card. But then also to um, talk to the stock contractors to make sure that, you know, sometimes the, the girls get in the way and we wanted to make sure that we were doing things that suited them that didn't hold up the the production at all. And uh, after I gave up my title as Miss Rodeo Utah, I got a call from Cotton one year after Ogden and he said, I'd like to take you to lunch. And 
I thought it was just to visit a bit with about the rodeo, and the rest is history, shall we say. Yeah, a lot of history, and as you made mention in the 40-some-odd years that um, that you guys have been together, there has been, you know, they always say behind every good man stands a great woman, and I've watched at these rodeos, Cotton does Cotton Rosser stuff, and you have got the to orchestrate so many different working parts with so much. And, I mean, is that something that, that he, once you guys got married, it's just like, this is what you do, or is that something that you kind of, that you took on more and more responsibility uh, on the rodeo side of? Uh, well, I, I've often said that um, I'm a jack of all trades, but a master of none. <laughs> um, right after we were married, we were uh, down in uh, at the forum, and uh, the forum was an indoor arena, indoor rodeo, and uh, where the Lakers played, and uh, uh, we were tearing down the well. At that point, we were tearing down the arena. I guess it was, and uh, Lee Roster said to me, "Come on." get in this truck. It's about time you learned how to drive the truck to haul the panels. Well, that was Jeez. around. The, yeah. <laughs> but but uh, I learned how to kind of set up an arena, tear it down. I don't know. I am not as good as Reno on the forklift. So uh, uh, in those days, it was all by hand and uh, learned how to pin panels and uh, we were also noted, Cotton was noted for having um, his bucking horses on a portable manger. So they were all halter broke. And he said, go down there and uh, unsnap that horse and bring him out here. Well, gee, have you ever walked in a manger? <laughs> mm. Especially a portable one, <laughs> because they're, they're canvas or, uh, and they, they're not, not real steady and then you got horses pulling back because hey there's a person walking down through the middle of them but uh learned how to do that um i i don't know that uh i haven't i haven't gotten into uh um loading uh any of the bucking stock i've helped load uh roping cattle so i i can work the the back end of that uh, the stripping shoot, <laughs> uh, know how to well, do that. Not, yeah. It's not, it's but not just, to, it just, <laughs> go ahead. Well, you have to also remember that, uh, it's always good to, um, have people that work that you don't have to pay. Yeah. <laughs> Ex excited young individuals. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that deal too, it's, I mean, to just to clarify this is uh, from what I've seen most all of the rodeos you go to and have a role of some part or another whether it's being a timer or a secretary or just helping cotton with logistics but it's not just you being at home and hanging out and if you were home just hanging out you guys also have a western store you have to take care of yes yes um and uh the the Western store, Cotton's had it for 64 years, 
and uh, it's in Marysville, one of the oldest Western stores still in existence in California. But uh, you know, there's a there's a a huge emotional attachment to this store because uh, Cotton was injured uh, in a tractor accident, and in those days uh, they didn't have insurance, and he had two small kids. He needed to figure out how he was going to support those kids because he was told that because of his tractor accident, he would never walk again. So uh, some good folks put on a benefit for him here in Marysville, or Yuba City, excuse me. And uh, with that money that they raised for the benefit, he was able to buy the Western store and thus ensure that his family would at least have bread on the table every day. And so uh, he's kept it going um, when probably the smart thing would be to close the, the store and just focus on the rodeo business, but he has, he's, hasn't ever done that. So we have both the Western store and the rodeo company. But your background, right, Karen, correct me if I'm wrong, there's fashion merchandising or something to that point of your education? Is that kind of yes. is that how that kind mm-hmm. of as well? Does that help that out? Um, it, it has to some degrees, not, uh, I wish I would have known what I know now, then that would have helped a lot. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Um, the one thing about the, the rodeo business too, is that, uh, besides learning about the logistics and, uh, the livestock is, uh, I had never flown in a small airplane until Cotton and I were married. And I have spent many hours in the Bonanza. And uh, Mm. the the sad thing is that uh, a few years ago, the insurance company said that uh, he was too old to fly any longer. And so they wouldn't insure him. And we have now graduated back to a, a car to get us to all those events and oh by the way i'm the driver (laughs) flying again no kidding geez add that to the resume of already tremendous amounts of obligation uh and v you've got to see uh the so the Cotton's Cowboy Corral that karen was just talking about it's it's not just a western store i mean it's got a lot of really cool stuff downstairs, all the clothes and everything and something for the entire family. And then you go upstairs and that's Cotton's office and the pictures throughout the years of all, you know, the, the horses and bulls that he's raised and the events he's put on. And I mean, just, it's insane to go there. It's literally a museum, you know, they've kind of got a part of it. That's a museum upstairs, but it is uh, downtown Marysville on fifth street. If I'm not mistaken, Cotton's Cowboy Corral, you got to check it out. Well, and we're also talking to a very talented cabinet maker. Steve Godard uh, came by one day and I said, nice. I'd really like to taste back here to put some of Cotton's memorabilia in. And he and I sat and talked about it. And not too much longer here, he and his father came and set up these beautiful cabinets that display all of this, these things that uh, were sitting in cabinets and boxes. So um, I always appreciate the fact that Steve had the same eye that I did and could understand what it was I was talking about. 
steep. Yeah, it didn't, and it it didn't hold all of it. It was like a fraction of the stuff. I mean, the the awards and everything. There's we need a warehouse to showcase that stuff. We do, we do, and you're right. But uh, no, uh, we have people come uh, all the time that want to come look at that. And then thanks to Steve, we're able to put it out on display. Karen, I got a question. So let's. I want to talk about what you've seen, what you've got an experience in these years of being around rodeo. So clearly you've been a part of uh, being a timer and a secretary. Could you, what are some moments you've seen, you've got to be front row that you've seen at a, at a like, can you, is there some moments you've got to witness something that was really important to the rodeo side during that competition, like a timer, anybody, is there anything that kind of sticks out of your mind, the moments you got to be a part of? Well, um, I uh, <laughs> got to think about that for a minute because uh, when you, when you you do it every day, you you don't stop to think that that was a, a monumental thing that just happened. I mean, it was just part of what you were there to do. Um, as I guess my life evolved in uh, the rodeo business. I wound up calling the spotlights at our indoor shows, working with the sound men, um, with the, the music. Um, and those were not things that I was trained to do, but um, I had some very good mentors, one of them being Lex Conley, who could announce a rodeo and tell you that spot number four was not... Um, open full and I mean, he was he was an unbelievable man as far as the production and could talk to people and also tell you that the sound needed to go up or the you know the, just a myriad of different things and I guess one of the stories about Lex is we were at the Kingdome in uh, Seattle and Kingdom is a huge building, and of course the the rodeo only played like a quarter of it. But um, the rodeo gets over, and the livestock they're putting it away outdoors. And here comes people. There's a bull going up the the walkways, and this bull is just taking a leisurely stroll <clears throat> up the the different floors. And Lex Conley goes out and jumps on one of the saddle horses and goes up there. And, uh, you know, indoor buildings, the floors are kind of slick. And with a horse with shoes on, it's even even worse. And Lex it goes up there. Uh, <laughs> one minute he's announcing, and the next minute he's out there trying to, to take care of a bull that's out. So uh, multifaceted. All the all the the people that are involved in rodeo have to be multifaceted. If only you had security cameras back then, that would have been fantastic for social media. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was before that. <laughs> Let's hit the pause button with Karen Rosser from Flying You Rodeo. After the break, Karen talks about her involvement with NFR in the early days of Las Vegas. In 2020, more than 7,000 kids will compete for the coveted 750 spots at the Junior World Finals in Las Vegas, presented by Yeti. Each qualifier will go head-to-head -head for more than a half a million dollars in a championship buckle in the biggest rodeo youth event in the country. This could be the first stop on the road to a pro rodeo car in a gold buckle in Vegas. 
Find out how your son or daughter can earn the right to compete against the best at the Junior World Finals, presented by Yeti. Hi, I am Benny Butler, and you're listening to NFR Extra. We are talking to Karen Rosser from Flying U Rodeo. When Karen is not donating her time with hosting ranch tours for school children, supporting FFA, 4-H, and high school rodeo clubs, she's managing Cotton's Cowboy Corral, a Marysville, California Western wear store. You were involved in the first NFR that came to Las Vegas. What was kind of your Vegas experience with the Flying U and the Thomas and Mac? Well, um, I think that uh, part of the reason besides Cotton being such a showman, the fact that uh, we had worked so many indoor buildings and that was new to a lot of people uh, that worked the NFR. They didn't know how to you know, talk to everybody. And Cotton had told me a long time ago, you always want to talk to the the gate man. Always be cut, nice to him because one day he may be your rodeo chairman. You never know. So uh, every time that we would go into a building, it was like you know, a family reunion and we knew the different people and um, new people that came on. It was like a new member of the family. So uh, when we went to the NFR, the very first NFR, uh, we wound up taking all the hoses to water all the livestock. Nobody had thought about that. And uh, we took the, the uh, decorations for the arena because nobody had really given that a whole lot of thought. Um, oh, and by the way, the picket men didn't have shirts, so we brought our wardrobe for the, the picket men. There were a lot of little details, the, the big stuff everybody had covered, uh, but it was the little details. And uh, as I shared with Braylon the other day, um, the, uh, uh, the building to call the spots, you had to get up in the, the basket before they opened the doors because they didn't want you falling out on people. So you had to sit up there um, and uh, I was sitting there just going over the what we were doing for the opening and uh, the sound man next to me said they want you on the headset so I got on there and it was the building and when do you want us to open the doors and I said what do you mean when do you open the doors uh have you checked with Sean Davis well we can't get a hold of him and you're the only one that we can get a hold of and I said well uh at, normally at our rodeos, we open the doors two hours before. Okay, two hours it is. And so I was the one that called the opening of the doors for the NFR uh, for the first <laughs> Nice. But, but there cool. again, yeah. <laughs> but there again, if you go to a, enough meetings, you kind of pick up on all the things that need to be done. And so um, they, they just came to me and asked. And like you said, the little details are the ones that typically end up being the most important ones. Mm -hmm. They are. They are. And we enjoyed our, you know, we did the openings for nine years there. And it was every performance Cotton wanted something different because he didn't want somebody going away. Well, you know, I've seen that before. Well, uh, with his imagination and um, Cindy, his daughter's help, uh, we were able to to do that and do th some things that 
people had never seen. I mean, they didn't know that you could put a horse up on a turntable and put fire underneath him and have him stand there. Not every horse is going to do that. But Cotton has been very good about finding those kind of horses that do that. Hey, Karen, were you and then Oklahoma? Uh, were you a big, were you a part, uh, were you helping out with the NFR at, at Oklahoma and then coming to Thomas Mack Center or was this all coming to Vegas, Thomas Mack Center? Well, this, this dates me too. The only time that I was in Oklahoma City for the NFR was when I went back as Miss Rodeo Utah to the Miss Rodeo America contest. Gotcha. Uh, so I had, I had seen it in person then, but I had not been back. So, um, um, we were happy that it came to Las Vegas. What a a great 24-hour town. Uh, Cotton tells stories about uh, going to Oklahoma City, and uh, he fly flew in there, and uh, the next morning gets up, and all of his horses have frost on their nose because uh, an ice storm had gone through there. And these are California horses. They don't know what that is. But uh, he, the other thing that he would say you'd go there and if you did not eat before the performance, you didn't eat because everything closed up. Well, look at the difference between Las Vegas. You can eat anytime you want in Las Vegas. And uh, so it's, it's been a, uh, a good move for everyone. Uh, Cotton was on the board that first year when they um, moved to Las Vegas and we were riding up in an elevator with some people that were from Oklahoma City, and and he said, "Well, what did you think of it? Well, we've like we like Oklahoma, but Las Vegas is great. Mm -hmm. So um, Las Vegas has uh, really taken the NFR to what it is now. I mean, uh, the showmanship, the you know, the cheering for the the different contestants. My my favorite part of the besides the opening and the national anthem." is when they introduce all the contestants by state and how they come in and how they've earned that right to ride then. I think that's entry. pretty emotional. Yes. Grand entry is definitely the best. And it, it's funny to watch like as each night goes on, you know, the, the excitement just keeps building with the horses and the competitors. They, it's one of those things that you just look forward to running down that tunnel on those horses. Yep, they, it is, it is. Hey, I got a question about, this is just kind of offhand of what are, all the other things we're talking about, but you're a member of, just think this is kind of kind of cool, this this HANDS, the H-A-N-D-S. Uh, what, mm -hmm. what is that? What First of all, what's that acronym and what does that all entail What, what that you're involved with? Well, it's uh, a group of 50 women that um, uh, have all been involved in rodeo, whether it's uh, with their husbands you know contesting or uh the, excuse me just a second sorry that wasn't my phone it was cotton's <laughs> um it, it so it's a group of 50 women that um, are there to support people in rodeo that maybe something has happened and they're not able to, you know, pay all their bills uh, to uh, just kind of uh, 
be there to uh, support. And um, it, it's a wonderful group of women. So kind of similar to like the Justin Cowboy Crisis Forum, but on a different format for the women. Yes, yes. And, and I'm sorry that we don't do a lot of fundraising like the Justin Crisis Fund. So our, our fees or the money that we raise are from each other. And um, we just donate what we can every year. And with that, that's how we're able to send little nice notes of encouragement to people. Or when, you know, a family member has passed away or uh, just, just in a small way. But uh, I think that uh, it's been very well received by people that have been recipients of it. And I'm also on the uh, board of the Rodeo Historical Society uh, that's based out of the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum in Oklahoma City. And uh, they're again another wonderful group, but they are uh, trying to uh, recognize people uh, that maybe were not recognized in their younger days, but are still involved. And uh, there's wonderful stories there as well. You know, and we just, I think we all tend to get so wrapped up in our busy lives that we kind of forget about the people that have gone before, come before us. And uh, this is a good reminder of pe what people have done in order to keep the rodeo spirit going. Uh, that's, that's awesome to recognize those people that, you know, and especially with rodeo, um, you know, it's, it's like, it always seems that there's a transition that kind of doesn't exist between somebody's hot and they're on fire. And then all of a sudden they get hurt or they retire and they kind of move on, um, and maybe didn't get the accolades that they should have received, um, or, you know, passed on yeah. when they were, when they were younger. But this year, um, is obviously been a very trying year for all of us in um i mean throughout every industry in the world uh but for rodeo especially because one thing that i don't think a lot of people take into consideration um is that a lot of those rodeos those animals uh that's how stock contractors make their money and when you're not putting those horses and bulls and roping cattle on the road they're staying at the ranch but they still got to be taken care of um, how Maybe. difficult has that been this well, year? Well, uh, it, it, it's a challenge. Um, uh, Cotton says that uh, he's a, a rodeo producer without a rodeo. <laughs> so uh, we've uh, tried to look at uh, different ways to cut expenses and uh, without having to... Um, cut our livestock down uh, because uh, you're talking about a lifetime of um, a breeding programs and uh, it's, you don't want to give that up in one, one uh, pandemic unless you have to. Uh, but we have also been the recipient of uh, a new group that has started called Rodeo Strong. Uh, it was started by Cindy Shockholt from St. Paul and she and her group were probably the first people to recognize that 
stock contractors have huge issues. And uh, so they have uh, done some fundraising and they've had different donations and they have written checks to stock contractors to just take care of the livestock um, for the feed, for, you know, the veterinary things that you have to have done. Um, it's not for uh, your payroll and uh, it's not for anything that's non, it's non rodeo related. But, um, and then uh, Cotton received a letter from one of his friends from Washington and inside was a check and uh, with a note saying, nobody's asked me, but I think that you've got a few more mouths to feed than I do. So I hope that you can put this to use. But it's people like that that uh, that we've been blessed to to know, and without saying a word, have just stepped up and given us a, a little boost. But uh, Cotton and Reno have uh, been very diligent in trying to sit down and and you know look at the bottom line. Without having any income coming in, we still have expenses, and uh, Reno has driving a truck hauling cattle for other people in order to have an income coming into the rodeo company. Uh, so it's, uh, as, as everybody else, it's a challenge. Uh, but as I keep reminding Cotton, we are better off than the people, say, in New York that live in a 900-square-foot apartment. We can at least walk out every day into the yard and have something to look at. And you know, there's always something that needs your attention and so we are we are much better off than a 900 foot apartment yeah and you know one of the things also is you've it, it's i think absolutely amazing that people have been reaching out and um and helping you guys um through this time to kind of sustain your livestock but you know throughout the rodeos that uh i've been fortunate enough to be a part of with you guys every rodeo that you put on has some event that helps, you know, where they're sending money back into the community, you know, like the Marysville stampede that you guys uh, put on there. Um, that, I mean, that's fully produced by flying you and the roster family and they put on additional events that help that community. So not only not having rodeos is hurting the rodeo industry, but it really is, I think taking a big hit to communities for, all the benefit that uh, rodeo brings as well. Yes, yes. And uh, um, one of our uh, committees is a chamber of commerce and they uh, suddenly found out that the rodeo brings so much more into their, the, the chamber that they need to operate with and they're trying to figure out how to do it later in the year. So we, we hope that we hope that's the case, but in California too, um, we do a lot of fair rodeos and the fairs have been forced to shut down too because of social distancing and how you, you know, how you do that on a fairground. Um, I don't know, uh, but the, they have been pretty creative in having the virtual um, livestock auctions for the kids. And so the kids that have raised animals aren't 
left out 100% by with the you know the speed and the care of their animal to get it to the fair and then not being able to sell it. So there again another learning experience for young people, but nobody could have taught them how to do that either because nobody has experienced anything like that. Yeah. You know, Chris Bowman talked about that. We were uh, talking to him from Rodeo Houston, and he was talking about when things got shut down, they were able to go to the auction side virtual, and what, what was it, $7 million, right? Is that the- $7.5 million was raised through their virtual auctions that they had to continue on, and that was not including the, the prior auctions that had went on. Yeah. 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 No, so, um, you know, uh, I... I think that people, you know, in livestock and agriculture and, of course, the American cowboy have a giving heart. And uh, they, they are trying to help everybody as best they can. Yeah, no, that's for sure. And that's kind of the Karen, I think you really hit that on the head is like, that's the just the cowboy way is helping your neighbor. And that's, you know, I mean, the whole entire ranching aspect is everybody going and helping everybody else when they need a job that, you know, requires multiple hands and then know that it comes back around to them. So it's very positive to see that there's some some stuff coming back around uh, to the people that have helped out so much for for rodeo. Mm-hmm. Well, Karen, you know, th- first of all, this was, I, this was great. I don't know if you thought this was going to go as well as you thought it was, but for us, this has been, we, there's a 360 here of what, things that we've learned of yourself that I think uh, a lot of people, I don't know. I mean, I think this was fantastic. Thank you for coming on. This was, uh, I, I like getting to know Karen Rosser. <laughs> well, as I, I, I said earlier, uh, you know, I'm honored that to be asked, but there are uh, more rosters that uh, are more interesting than this one. So, <laughs> but I appreciate the the opportunity. Steve Brown, anything for Karen? I yeah. yeah, that was awesome. All the all the years I, I've known you, and I've learned a lot here from uh, just from this conversation. And it's great to hear you guys doing well, and look forward to being able to get down the rodeo trail again, and and hopefully see everybody healthy and doing well in Las Vegas for the Wrangler National Finals Rodeo. Yes. Yep. We're all all looking forward to rodeos and good times. Yes. Thank you for joining us. All right. Well, thank you. You all take care and stay safe. Hi, I'm world champion Jacob Scrawley, and you're listening to NFR Extra. Howdy, ladies and gentlemen. We've got Dale Brisby. Welcome to Rodeo Times 7 and 7. That is the show. This is the show where we're going to call rodeo athletes. And if they don't know, let them know what time it is. And then seven questions in seven minutes. So next up, we're going to call Wesley Thorpe. He is a 2019 Team Roping World Champion. I believe he's a header. Is he a header, Donnie? I mean, that's what you said. I think he's a header. Anyways, we're going to find out because we're going to call him. And I'm sure he's going to answer again because he's just as much a fan of me as I am him. Looks like we got the same area code. Find out where this guy's from. Right up the road, probably. I bet he moved here just to be close to a champion like me. Am I calling the right guy? Yep. We are. You do not send Dale Brisby to voicemail. Don't do it, Wesley. Don't do it, Wesley. 
Oh my gosh. Hmm. He doesn't even have a personalized voicemail. That's baloney. Wesley, this is Dale Brisby, and you do not send Dale Brisby to voicemail. Call me back for your 7-7 seven and seven with Dale Brisby. This is an opportunity of a life, lifetime, Wes. I know you're a world champion, but you get a call with DB. Okay, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Call me back. Love you, bye, like me. Wesley, this is DB. How are you today? Hey, I'm good. How are you doing? Really good. We're just uh, in here calling a few of our favorite rodeo cowboys. You said you're at a school today? Uh, yes, sir. I had a half a day, half a day in school this morning. Okay, a little, little team rope in school. How many students do you yeah, have? There are about six or seven. Okay, nice. 67. Yes, um, is that headers and healers or just one? And you, you won the world in the in the um, heading, right? Uh, healing, yes, sir. Healing, yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, thanks for joining us. This is um, Rodeo Time Seven and Seven. Seven questions in seven minutes. If you are ready, we'll jump right into them. Just a few easy questions. We just kind of want to learn more about our NFR friends and athletes. You bet. Okay. Cool. Uh, so. What is it that got you started in um, in healing? Like, what what made you choose that event? Well, I, I grew up roping cows and being around. Uh, I grew up, you know, in, around a ranching family and rode horses and uh, rode calves and stuff. And I started team roping, and, and uh, my dad healed. Um, it's mainly what he did, so I always thought that was kind of cool when I was at a young age to. Um, I just thought healing looked fun, and but I wanted to learn how to head too, and I kind of started out mainly heading, um, you know. Also, so uh, I, I just thought it was fun to, to heal. I don't know; it just kind of was always appealing to me. It seems like it's hard to find headers because <laughs> everybody does want to heal, but um, you know. So I thought the opposite was true. I thought it was. I thought headers always had a hard time finding finding healers. Well, as far as uh, as far as you know, it's true a little bit. But like, as far as learning, like around our community and all the people that roped and stuff, it was just funny because everybody would get to where they could head pretty good, and then they'd all want to start healing. So we could never have enough people to turn the steers. Gotcha. That um, was kind of funny. It was just kind of the joke growing up that as soon as somebody learned how to head good have a good partner then they don't want to start healing uh it's hard to keep keep headers around so but, uh, where did you grow up uh throckmorton Texas. oh okay yeah not far yeah I, I live about 30 miles from there yes sir yes sir so i guess that that leads us into our our, our second question who inspires you the most it sounds like it might be your dad well that, yeah my my dad he grew up roping and stuff and kind of got me uh him and my granddad both they my granddad really got me started riding a lot. He raised horses and um, ran cattle. My dad roped and, and ran cattle. So they, they kind of both got me started as far as uh, my dad hauled me around a lot in the junior rodeos and stuff. And, um, you know, he, he really liked the competition side of it. And uh, my dad, my granddad liked more of the, the training side of it and, and messing with horses. So it was kind of a good combination there. You know, they 
they both were able to help me a lot. And uh, my my dad really he he helped me the most, kind of picking the right path. He, he knew a lot about roping and about um, a lot of things with rodeo, but but what he didn't know, he never he never gave bad bad information. Or if he didn't know something, he tried to help me get somebody to somebody that did know it. You bet. So I would say he had a big big impact on me in that way. So. Going through the rodeo um, levels, I guess you could say. What? Tell me about the transition competing at the CNFR compared to the NFR. Well, it's just a, it's a lot different atmosphere. Um, it, it's a, it is a different it's kind of a stepping stone. Just because the NFR to me is the is the ultimate. You know, it's the Super Bowl. So when you when you grow up as a kid, I mean. I remember being a you know a really young kid watching NFR on TV and, and just that was it you know I'd go out there and rope the dummy all day long and I was just you know I was Trevor Brazil back in the box or I was Leo Brian Cooper back in the box or Speed Williams or Rich Skelton you know I mean you're just out there acting like you're whoever's you're watching and roping the dummy a million times as a little kid so it's something that you've literally set your sights on since at a very young age. So that's kind of the ultimate goal, and the, and the college finals is a prestigious event. But once once you get, it, it's just that it's just a stepping stone to the NFR. You know, I mean, it's a um, it's against people that are all kind of at your level or, or at that stage in their in their career. You bet. And, uh, you know, the NFR is the is the very best of the best at, at everything. So coming in. If you're going to give advice to a, a contestant coming in, let's say he's going into the team roping, whether it be head nor healing, what what would be some general advice that comes to mind for that young person? You have to get around the right the right people. Um, get around uh, you know, somebody, have a mentor, somebody that knows uh, knows more than you do, and, and rope around guys that are better than you, and uh, and kind of get a get a path to follow. Kind of get you. You know, have a game plan. That way, you know kind of what to do at each step and, and where to go and what you should be. It, it'll save you a lot of time. You know, there's not as much as much trial and error involved. Yep. Um, you know, it saves you a lot of a lot of steps or saves you a lot of bad habits. Um, you know, it can, it can save you some bad decisions on different all kinds of things. So, I mean, really getting around somebody that can, knows more than you do and, and can help you and and then you know, kind of, kind of getting a game plan. So 2020 has obviously been a little bit of a different year. How has, have you gained a new perspective on the importance of rodeo in your life? Uh, it has been a, a very different year. Um, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to, to have had a few good years, you know, the last few years, meet a lot of people, a lot of new people and, and, and to answer your question, I'd say yes. I mean, it, it's made such an impact on me to all the people I've met through rodeo that, you know, during this time, whenever there weren't things going on, I, I was able to, to have lessons and, and stay stay pretty busy that way and stuff. So, um, but it doesn't matter what you're doing. I think rodeo as a whole, I mean, it's just, there's a lot of, a lot of opportunities out there, um, you know, other avenues and, and ways to, to get around the right people. So it's, it's, uh, definitely been pretty you know eye-opening during this time yes sir um what's been your what's been your favorite rodeo win that you can remember uh, 
favorite rodeo win. I, I thought Reno, I uh, won Reno Nevada one time. I thought that was, that was pretty cool. Yes, sir. Yeah, that'd be a good one. That one's, is that in uh, April or am I thinking Red Bluff? That's uh, in June. June. The end of June. Okay. Yes, I might be thinking Red Bluff. Uh, so, speaking of June, what's the longest that you've been away rodeoing at one time? I'm going to say I've been gone for, uh, I had my family with me last year in the summer. We were probably gone for six, six weeks at one time. Oh, wow. Almost up to eight weeks. So, I mean, I, I would say close to two months at one time I've been gone. That's a long time with horses. That's <laughs> it. That's a long time. That's absolutely, yeah. and it would—it wouldn't be fun at all if you didn't have. I mean, I had my family with me, so it made it nice because we were in nice weather, and we got to stay in, around Ellensburg at the reps' house. And they have a really cool place. It kind of feels like home away from home, you know. And, uh, so that that made it nice, but that is a long time to be away from. Be away. Yes, sir. Well, I sure appreciate you uh, joining us for uh, seven and seven, and uh, man, I wish you. Uh, Wish you the best in 2020 and hope your your summer starts off great and, and ends with, uh, Lord willing, another trip to the NFR. Oh, that'd be nice. I sure appreciate it. Thank well, you. y'all getting any bind over there ranching, just give me a call. I'm right down the road. <laughs> yes, sir. Okay. All right, Wesley. Have a good day. You too. Uh-huh. Thank you. Oh, don't turn it off. We've got, i got to tell him goodbye, Donnie. Thank you guys for joining us. Um, this has been Rodeo Times 7 and 7, where we uh, talk to some of your favorite NFR athletes, seven questions in seven minutes. And um, I guess we're on to the next one. Donnie is more ready than ever. And pow, pow, I'm your man, Dale Brisby. Do you need a dose of social? A dash of insider info? Then the National Finals Rodeo Social Network is set up just for you. Get updates insights, unique content, and much more on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can find us at Las Vegas NFR. And be sure to use hashtag WranglerNFR on your post and tweets. There's something for all rodeo fans. This is the NFR. This is Vegas. Hi, this is Derek Stevens. I'm the owner and chief executive officer of the D Las Vegas. This is NFR Extra. Chris Cox, the four-time Road to the Horse champion, has been conducting clinics and demonstrations for over 28 years. Influenced in his early years by both English and Western traditions, Chris has implemented a style and technique that can be applied universally between both horse worlds. Chris talks to us about his definition of success in the horse business and why 40 million fans on RFD-TV have come to love Chris Cox horsemanship. He demonstrates with dedication and mutual respect to achieve a versatile and willing partnership between horse and human. If you love horses, then you will enjoy our conversation with Chris on NFR Extra. Welcome to NFR Extra, Chris Cox. Hello, sir. How you doing? Doing great. How you guys doing? Not bad. You got the heat in Texas, and I've got the cold in Montana still. Yeah, I heard there's a cold front up there. Yeah, it's called Montana. It just it never goes away. So yeah, well, we've got a ranch in Wyoming, and we're leaving to go up there this weekend for the summer. And it's been snowing there all week, so we're kind of stuck in between heat and snow. So uh, yeah. So how did you uh, how did you get involved in the aspect of horse training that you are now? Uh, did you come from a background of that from a ranching family or from training family? Or tell us a little bit about how you got into it. Well, I um, 
I didn't didn't certainly come from a group of horse trainers. It came from a, a family of ranchers, and uh, just raised on a ranch. And you know, we used to use the horse a lot, and uh, fortunate enough to to you know start at a young age, and and we had to go off to boarding school eventually, and and then because we lived so far from town. But uh, yeah, the horse was a big part of our lives, and and I really didn't know that. I could make a good living with it um, until later on in my life. I came, I was born in the States and I went to Australia when I was just about 18 months old. I came back when I was 18 and started my, my career. I actually, um, actually got a, a BLM um, permit, um, Bureau of Land Management, where I went around and started wild mustangs at some of these adoption satellites that we're doing so that's kind of how I first got started doing clinics that's been 32 years ago and so it's just it's just kind of revolved from there you know so when you grew up uh on, on the ranches there that was obviously in Australia did you guys the difference I mean I just assume everybody rides a stock saddle and cracks a whip down in Australia is that pretty much the case or is that did you guys use ropes or what's it like growing up on a ranch in Australia well uh, our ranch was a little bit differently because my dad was raised on King Ranch, so he, he had brought some, you know, Western-style saddles over there, and he used the rope quite a bit. But, you know, we'd go back and forth uh, from a Western saddle to a stock saddle, you know. We were kind of diversed in that area. And we, we grew up uh, catching cattle by the tail, you know. Mm. Yeah. If you know anything about um, That's how we caught cattle and bulls and stuff. And, and so uh, learned how to use a whip, but also – you know, we used a rope as well at times, and and uh, I felt like I had the best of both worlds. So, when you went off to boarding school, did you have to leave all that behind, or did you were you able to come home for summers and work, or what? I mean, did you have a little sabbatical from horses? No, never really. I, I always came back from you know back the summers, or, or I'd go contract gathering. Um, some friends I used to gather go to ranches and that contract gathering cattle. Uh, it could be, you know, big ranches, um, you know, a million to me and acres and I'd go with them for the summer and, and gather cattle and, and stuff. And so I was always involved uh, in that. I, I, I played rugby. I was a pretty decent rugby player growing up and, and, uh, but it just wasn't my passion. You know, I, I was, I was pretty good at it, but it just wasn't my passion. But uh, yeah, I, you know, the horses always, that were just part of my life. I, I, I went to a horse a lot, whether in stressful times and happy times. And, you know, I just felt like I got, uh, I it kind of, it kind of really helped my soul and, and, uh, just guided me over here. And, and, um, you know, the, all the things that I've learned from the horse, I've tried to put into my life and, and, uh, I actually, my techniques on teaching people are just the simple, the techniques that I use when I'm working with a horse. So it's all transpired in a big circle. Speaking of big circles, when you talk about gathering a million, two million acre ranches, what kind of, I mean, you've got to have some serious horsepower when you go out there. Well, everybody's got, you know, a group of horses, just like a remuda over here. They've got eight or 10 different horses. And then, uh, but those horses, a lot of those horses over there are not purebred quarter horses. A lot of them are crossed anymore they're crossed or they had the Australian stock horse which is a, 
is a smaller type of thoroughbred that um, if you ever watch the map in Snowy River, you get a pretty good idea. But they, their stamina and their strength and their speed, you know, when you when you you're trying to gather wild cattle in big country, it, they cover a lot of a lot of, a lot of country. And you know, at that time, the quarter horses they went through a stage to where they were bulldoggy, thick, heavy horses earlier on, and and they couldn't cover the country the way they needed. But you know, the style has changed now, and now you've got quarter horses that look like thoroughbreds or big and strong and lanky and Kind of like the uh, the running quarter horses, you know, but um, yeah, it was it was uh, having a having a good horse or having a horse that had the had the heart and and the stamina was was very important. So that kind of did that kind of translate over to your BLM side for when you started working with all those BLM horses. For I mean, you had to have been fairly familiar with a pretty rugged horse then. Well, it's funny you said that. I was actually just thinking about and talking about that the the other day with with some folks. You know, I think what's what's helped helped me be successful uh, in starting colts or in my horsemanship is the is growing up having those not so well bred or tougher horses. You know, that that could buck, that could kick you down when you're petting their nose. You know or strike at you, you know, that were so quick and, or you'd ride them all day and they'd buck at five o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. And, and, you know, today these horses are so well bred and, and, you know, they almost come broke, you know, and, yeah. uh, the, the, the fight, a lot of the fight has been taken out of them through the bloodlines over the years. And, and, you know, there's the odd one, you know, we, we all, you know, and there'd be people, thinking well I've got this one I've got that one yeah but I tell you what growing up it was those horses are pretty pretty stingy and in having that experience uh, through that um, it certainly helped me uh, in my journey and it doesn't mean that every horse that I worked with was easy but you know the, the foundation that I had of, the, of those horses certainly made me a lot more aware and more sensitive yeah. Hey, Chris, so, I mean, clearly you can hear the passion of what you have for horsemanship and or just horses in general. Just like we ask a lot of athletes, pro contestants for rodeo, what have you, at what point in your age did it go, this is going to be what I do every day of my life going forward? There had to come a point where this is like, this is going to pay the bills. When did that start to happen? Uh, I think it took 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, during this COVID-19, I haven't had a check in three and a half months. So, <laughs> but, um, yeah, you know, I tell you, I've always, I've always, um, tried to preach to children and, and, uh, and to myself. And there was a, a lot of times there, it was hard to make it. I starved to death when I first started. I used to, I did a testimonial the other day and I used to eat rice and, getting started and and uh you know it, it was it was just tough but i never quit and it, i could have took a lot of turns and a lot of and i don't say i've made it but i'm sure a lot further along uh, in my life than than if i would have gone in a different direction i'm sure but um you know, i just never quit and, and i just i was very re resilient and so 
I, I knew that if I had a passion for it, that uh, I would be good at it. And when I'm good at it, money will eventually come. So I see, that, I see young kids today and they get into it and they look at the, the money side of it and uh, don't get into it if it's, it's about money because horses is way too much work. And if you add up the, you add up the per hour and all that, um, it doesn't add up. But when you develop a passion, when you can get up and you can work for free, if you had to work for free and it's something that you love to do. And for me, it's, it's growing me as a person and, and trying to sharpen my skills and my, my communication, my feel and my awareness each and every day and feeling those horses feet hit the ground and knowing where the feet are anytime I want that, that to me drives me. And now I've got a family and my children, I watch them ride and I ride together with them and I see the passion that they have. Um, it makes it all worthwhile, but to, to get back to circle back around to your question is that I knew, I knew it would eventually come if I kept the passion and whatever it takes to do, I had to do it. And, you know, whether it's working seven days a week or, or working from early, early in the morning to late at night, I've done all those things. I've had to clean the stalls myself. I had to dock the cattle myself. I had to fix fence myself. I had to do everything myself until I can afford some help, you know, and then buying your first place and, you know, just on and on and on and on. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not easy and it's not for the weak hearted, but I think the resilience and, um, has really helped me, you know, stay forward and go forward and, and never quit. So I'm pretty blessed with that. During the process of your training and deciding to take this on full time, how has your, you know, your technique maybe changed over the timing of from where your facility is at, what your facility consists of? Is there certain things that you have to have in order to train? That's a great question. And um, I, you know, we grew up round pens are a big thing and, you know, everybody used round pen and, started cold in a round pen you had to have a round pen when I first did clinics I'd put them in a round pen and if you come to the ranch today you go to my little round pen and it's full of grass and and the reason being is that um, I haven't I, I've tried to perfect my horsemanship to where I didn't have to rely on a pen and I, I wanted to rely on the on my techniques and my feel and my timing and my communication with my horse. And so, um, yeah, you know, I'm forever growing and, and I'm, I'll always be a student of the horse. I'll never be an expert. I never tell anybody I'm an expert because what that does is it stops, it gets me to where I think I got it all figured out. And I don't, um, I have success. I, uh, every horse has a different personality. Every horse has a different feel and I've got to learn to be able to adjust to those horses. And my biggest thing now is teaching. I, I, I make an income from teaching. I, I ride my own horses so I don't get paid to ride other people's horses. I teach, I have groups of people that come to me and I teach and, and, and I realize when I'm teaching somebody 
and them and their horse, they all receive the message a little bit differently. And it, it, the horses helped me to be able to readjust that message to fit the needs of each personality. And so, um, you know, when we grew up in school, you know, my mind operated so fast. If my teacher was, just didn't keep my attention, it would drift off. And I'd be looking out the window. I'd be writing stuff down or dreaming about my dreams and going forward or coming to the United States and my ambitions. But if they kept my attention, I'd focus. And so horses, uh, horses are the same way and people are the same way. So I, I've, I've had to learn a teaching style and learn to adjust my style and my techniques depending on the, the student, whether it's the horse or the human. And so that's an, that's an ongoing craft that I'm, I'm learning to work on. And uh, there for years, you know, I've done it for so long, I, I got burnt out. I probably got burnt out twice. And the last seven years, I've just, or the last seven, 10 years, I've re reignited myself with the passion and, and, uh, and understand it's a challenge. And I work on myself. So if somebody was to say, do you train horses? And I said, I'll tell them, no, I actually train myself. So when I'm working with a horse, I'm training on myself. Because if I do all the correct things and I'm in the timing, the feel, and the sensitivity and the awareness of the horse's emotions, I can accomplish something. But if I'm not and I'm training the horse, I take it out on the horse. I get frustrated on the horse. It's always the horse's fault. And I never do admit myself to myself that I'm the problem. And so uh, it's an ongoing process and it's an amazing process. And, um, we actually, um, actually started a, a foundation called lead changes, leadchanges.org. We take children and we're taking them this summer. We're bringing some children out of the inner cities every year. Uh, talking about California, the Compton area, different parts of the United States, some ranch kids that need lifting up. We build the personalities up. We give them self-esteem. We give, we teach them respect and a work ethic and um and we teach them how to communicate to a horse and what happens is when the horse tells them what to do they listen and it's amazing transformation so you know the whole the whole understanding of the communication through the horse the horse is such a powerful animal it heals people every day whether it's therapeutic or mentally or or even just common people like myself that have stress and and um you know worries throughout the day when i get on my horse and i I work with my horse and I communicate to him and I connect to him. It, it has a special little place in my life where I go there and it's peace and, and, and everything's taken away. It's just me and that horse and we become a unity and uh, it's, it's the best therapy you could ever have. First of all, just to be clear, you know, Brylan, Steve, they grow up in this world around horses, just the whole ranching lifestyle. For me, I have family that it's a part of it in Colorado and things like that, but I'm just more a fan of people's passions and the things that they do. I think there's, there's so much life marketing in that, but I want to talk about, I, th I just like the name of this event, uh, road to the horse world champion. And you're a four time uh, champ there undefeated. Could you talk a little bit about this competition, you know, your, your years and winning it and just kind of, what does it entail? Cause I, I'm fascinated to hear from what this, what this is all about. Well, we, we kind of touched a little bit on my background uh, earlier growing up and, 
and I had this, uh, I had these people that came to me um, in the early 2000, 2000, 2001, maybe 2000, that wanted to start a competition. And, and so I met with them and, and, um, and gave them some ideas and, and they asked me, said, who would you like to go up against? I said, the best in the world. So I gave them some names, Buck Branham and Pat Pirelli, you know, Clinton Anderson had started about that time. And to make a long story short, they didn't invite me on the first, even though I organized, they didn't invite me on the first road of the horse. And I guess I was scorned a little bit. So I was away from it for three years, um, yeah, three to four years. And then they came back around and wanted me to go up against the champion, champions. So in 2007, I did. And that's where, um, where they, they bring in horses that are three-year-olds that have sometimes they've had a holter on them, but they barely can lead. And um, so they're, they're bigger, stronger horses. They haven't had a lot of handling. They've never been saddled. They've never been ridden. And they bring them in front of seven to 10,000 people. Sometimes, some, some years it was 14,000. And, and they, uh, we, uh, we've got, uh, oh, I guess two hours one day with an, with, I believe, a 40 minute mandatory time. We got to give the horse a rest. And by the third day, and, and, and you probably got, you might have 30 to 40 minutes of actual riding on this horse. We rope on them. We jump a jump on them. Um, we back them up. We walk, trot, canter, lope, stop, turn around in front of the crowd. And so this is all done with a roar horse. And it's probably one of the most roar things you'll ever see in front of a crowd. And so, um, and you're judged. You have judges that are there. You've got five judges, the high and low scores thrown out. You've got veterinarians on hand to make sure that the horse is taken care of uh, and, and not abused and, and the horse doesn't get too hot and all these things. and. And so I went in 2007, and I was fortunate enough to win it that time. And and then they invited me back in 2008. I uh, went up against four guys and won it there. And then probably one of the most memorable ones is in 2011, I went back where the, uh, at that time the three top horsemen, as far as commercial horsemen, uh, were involved, and that was Pat Pirelli myself and then Clinton Anderson. And, um, and there were so many people there, the toilets were backed up and the concession stand ran out of, ran out of food. And, and, uh, uh, it was, there was a lot of people there. And one of the most memorable things, my mother and my father's never seen me do a demonstration. I left home when I was really young and, and my mom flew over and actually surprised me. She was 70 and she, uh, well, no, she was 68. She's 80, 82 now, but, uh, that was in 2011. And, uh, and that was a great surprise. And, and my children were just getting around, walking around and, and, um, they didn't, didn't really remember it, but that was a very memorable time. And I actually, I won there and then I stayed out for a few years and, um, and the producer called me and said, what would it take to get you to come back? And I said, a hundred thousand dollars for the winter. And so I 
I came back in 2015 and went up against some people that have went through some competitions and and won their leg and I was fortunate enough to win it in 2015 and so I haven't been back since but but what was really special about 2015 is that um, uh, my wife was there of course she was there with with every one of the ones that I, I won but my children were old enough to to remember it and they were old enough to be involved and I've got a I'm 53 but I'm I'm an old pupper I've got a 10 year old and 11 year old a girl and a boy and and I look over there and they're cheering and jumping up and down and cheering me on and and you know that was the most special thing um in my life as far as letting them watch the competition you know and so that that in a nutshell is pretty much what it is and it's they've taken horsemen from all over um there's people that have competed against from all over the world and and there, there's certainly been some copycats. You know, they have it in Europe, and there was I judged one in Poland one year. Australia has them. New Zealand has them. Canada has them. Um, so, uh, but that was one of the first ones to start up, and I was I was very fortunate to to do well in that competition. Time to take a break with Chris Cox from Chris Cox Horsemanship, and when we get back, Chris shares his insight on how to connect humans to horses, plus how the power of television led to his success. One under 20 of the best cowboys and barrel racers rode into Las Vegas last December and left $10 million richer. The chase for 2020 has already begun and all champions are hungry for gold. Be sure to follow your favorite cowboys, barrel racers, and local rodeos all season long. It all leads to one place, the Wrangler National Finals Rodeo. Learn more at nfrexperience.com. This is the NFR. This is Vegas. Hi, I'm Sean Davis, and you're listening to NFR Extra. We are here with Chris Cox from Chris Cox Horsemanship. Chris was inducted into the Texas Cowboy Hall of Fame in 2015. You said that now your kids are riding with you. Are they showing, like, real interest in that, or is it something that they kind of, I mean, is it, uh, you know, having watched you win the road to the horse, and now being at the house and riding, I mean, is that a passion that's growing for them? Well, first of all, I don't make them uh, go ride their horse. Uh, I've never forced it upon them. But what I have done, I've taught them respect and discipline and hard work. And um, uh, as we all know, the girls, um, uh, as a girl, as a child, they're, they're more mature earlier than a boy is. And my daughter is, she woke, she come out of the wound talking horse. I mean, she's just horse crazy. And so, um, it, uh, it, it's, it was pretty special to be able to, um, see her interest and, and she's always been a fan. My son, um, he rode, but he wasn't as passion, passionate. And just in the last two years, he's become really passionate. And he rides really good, and uh, he ropes, and um, you know he rides steers and junior bulls, and and so, um, but they they both they both have a passion for the horse. Um, they love their horses, they care for their horses. Their horses trust them, and uh, yeah, it's it's 
you know, there's, I don't care what it is. Uh, you look at what's going on in the world today. If these children don't have, have any chores, they don't have anything to look after. They don't have an animal to look after. Um, they don't have a passion and my children have a passion. And I, I was just this morning, you know, I get up at four o'clock and go work horses and I looked over at five o'clock in the morning or five thirty in the morning, my son's in the, in the barn way feeding horses and he got up himself and, you know, he's, he rode, got up and rode early and, and, uh, you know, we don't make them do that. They've got to want to do that. And I think it's how you set them up. And people ask me all the time, they say, well, how do you get your children to ride? I said, here's the deal. I've seen it in baseball and I've seen it in football and I've seen it in soccer and I've seen it with horses. The parents over dominate the children and they try to live their dream through the child. And I said, here's the key. Pull them off the horse when they're crying to stay on. Don't wait until they're crying to get off. So when I first started with them, I'd let them ride a little bit. And they're having a good time. I'd stop them. Let's go. Let's put them up. But I see so many adults that drive it. And when they're too young, they make them. And then they're, they're crying to get off their horse. You know, another thing is I made it fun for them. You know, I didn't give them too much instruction at the beginning. I want them to go have a good time, chase each other, play on their horses, do whatever. And I wanted to enjoy it. And then the instruction started coming slowly and, and then the instruction just wasn't like it was overwhelming, you know, so they didn't have to do everything perfectly. They just had to be able to enjoy themselves. And when the passion come, they want to get better at it. They want to get better at their stops. They want to get better at their turnarounds. They want to get better working a cow, you know? So um, I think that that's very important to be able to keep that passion going. Yeah, that's, that's awesome, man. That's that, uh, the opportunity, um, you know, to have instruction like that, how many people would be clamoring over themselves to, to do that, but for you to be able to see that, you know, and you've made multiple comments about, um, about horses and about people being similar on that. So to be able to put that parallel together of, you know, you put too much pressure on a kid, they're going to probably do the opposite. Uh, you, you also made mention that, uh, that you're not, you don't take outside horses for training and you've just got your, your own horses. Are those horses that you market to sell or are those just your own personal riding horses? Well, that's a good question. I, I, uh, you know, I do have uh, one horse here from a friend of mine or two horses here from a friend of mine. I just do once in a while, but, uh, but yeah, they're all, they're all ours. And, um, I'm a poor hand at selling a horse because we don't sell them, we match them. So uh, our reputation is, is way too valuable than to try to sell a horse that doesn't fit somebody. So my wife and I, we're very, very diligent about making sure that that horse has a good home and that horse fits that rider's needs and fits that rider's experience. So um, I don't care if they'll give us 50000 or 100000 for the horse. It's got to be a fit. And so we want it to be sound. You know, we want it, we just don't want to sell horses. There are horses here that we'll never sell. And two reasons why we won't sell them. One is they take too much maintenance. And there's, you know, they'll, they'll buck if they give them an opportunity. If they're not, not under my guidance, 
uh, I can maintain them for six months and they won't ever buck. But if they go to somebody and they don't know how to maintain them, they're just that style of horse, I'll never sell that horse. And yeah. another thing, I'll never sell one that has a physical problem. Because, you know, it just, you know, I, I want my reputation to be, to, to be, to be clean and, you know, it's not worth it. So, um, yeah, we, we don't, we don't really push horses to market them to sell them, but, um, you know, we show horses, uh, a little bit. We show them the rainy cow horse as well. And, and we show, I show some cutting horses once in a while, if I got a good one and uh, I team rope some when I get a chance. And, and so, um, then we have some, just some good ranch horses. So, yeah, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm real careful about making sure that the right horse gets to the right person. That's awesome. It's one of those things that it definitely shows the horse's abilities better too when you do allow them to match up correctly. Part of that success you share on the Chris Cox Horsemanship Clinic that airs on RFD TV. How did you get involved kind of in sharing on that big of a platform? You know, uh, all 16 or 18 years ago, Patrick Gotch called me and I had some old um, DVDs or CDs or something or VHDSB, I don't know what it was, but he wanted to play them on this RFD TV. And so I was real reluctant at the beginning. I didn't send them to him. And then he kept calling. And at that time, it was public. It was a public television. And uh, and he got in trouble for doing some stuff. And he had to shut the thing down and then reopen it where it was profit. And, and so I signed up with him and, you know, I started doing a, started doing a weekly show and and uh i was real apprehensive um about it you know because i i worked all my life for this information and and here i am i'm paying i actually had to pay RSTTV for airtime and then i'm giving away free information mm-hmm. and and so but what that did for me was it got me to a lot of people you know, I drove a truck and trailer all over the United States and Canada, and I performed at the Calgary Stampede all the way to Miami, Florida. And, um, but it got me in so many households. And, you know, you can drive the wheels off your truck, but, you know, the television was powerful at that time. And this is before, you know, Facebook and, and all that. And it was, it was really, uh, it exposed myself quite a bit and 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 it i think it was good i've built a lot of relationships and a lot of connections over the years and and matter of fact i'm still on there you know and uh i didn't want to be a commercial horseman commercialized horseman um most people that know me i i'm i'm actually pretty shy i'd rather be home and but it, it gave me a lot of opportunity to get in the doors and and be a, a guest speaker in different places and, and, you know, meet a lot of wonderful people across the country and in parts of the world. So, um, but it's, you know, I've been on there 16, 17 years now. And, and, uh, you know, with the, with the internet going on, you just don't know, you know, television is, is losing its grip. Um, because there's so much on whether it's Facebook or YouTube or, you know, there's so many, so much information out there that these kids that can just get on their phone and 
look up anything. And, you know, where I grew up, we didn't have phones. We didn't have, there wasn't any VHS videos. There wasn't anything. You know, you might read the Western Horseman once in a while and see an article in there, but, and the people that knew something, they, they're reluctant to tell you. And so, but the, the format and the information today, there's no excuse for people not to do well with their horses. Absolutely agree with that. Talking about technology, you know, something I've learned from my kids, and we actually were talking to um, Chris Bowman earlier from Rodeo Houston, and he was just talking about how, you know, this evolution utilizing technology and, and understanding you got to give into it and how it works. One thing I've learned with our, my kids, specifically the teenager, is that you're right. I mean, anything that I've learned from him of like, you got to figure something out, he goes right to YouTube. And, 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 you know, before, if you go 10 years ago, you're like, oh man, you're on the computer all the time. Like I've watched him use it as a way to learn something. Uh, back to, you were talking about, um, you know, soccer, horse stuff. Like my, my, my son's really big into soccer, right? And he's really trying to get into college and things like that as he's in high school right now. And he, he uses YouTube for all of his training. You know, he follows all the certain aspects to it. And when I think about the horsemanship side, holy crap, man, I could only imagine are you using some of those formats? I mean, is that something you're using or is it some, I don't know. I mean, like, are you kind of using the technology there? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, um, you know, I have made it a, a point not to be technical myself. So, um, we actually have, um, a media crew that work for me full time that uh, film and edit. So they're part of a team and, and we're, we're looking into doing more and more of that. Um, I, I've missed the boat a little bit on that. We have a, a pay-per-view channel where people get on there and they can click and anywhere in the world, you can go on there and learn how to do this and do that for just a short fee, small fee. And I quit um, making VHS, I mean, DVDs, because there's a, a group out of uh, Europe that were actually buying my DVDs in part and recording them and tape and then pirating them and selling them on eBay. And so when they received the, the DVD, it didn't work. And then they call our office and want to want to get it exchanged. And so well, you didn't buy it from us, you know? And so that's, what's driven me more to, to the uh, Vimeo or, or the, you know, the, the style of uh, the pay-per-view. Um, I've got about 280,000 followers on my Facebook and, um, I'm, I'm trying to get better at keeping, keeping up with them. And I, I want to be able to grow that some more. And, and I think that, uh, I think that there's, there's, there's certainly an opportunity there. Uh, the older people are starting to learn to use phones a little bit more. You even know some older people that are starting to know how to get on Facebook or the internet and, you know, and that's where, you know, just till just a few years ago, um, it was just the younger crowd that was doing it. Now the older people are, it's a, it's a necessity now, you know? So, um, it's, uh, but yeah, to answer your question, I do a little bit of it, but I need to do a lot more. That makes sense. Completely makes sense. So my clientele is roughly from 40 to 65. Uh, doesn't mean I don't have, you know, teenagers and 20 year olds. I certainly do, but, but the, but the demographics are, 
or in that area and they you know own anywhere from two to six horses you know got a little place somewhere and and uh so that you know my, my clientele are, are mainly you know middle age or a little bit older what uh so if i'm trying to find out some information or get a video from you, you talk about the pay-per-view channel how would i go about finding you on the pay-per-view channel i think you just go into my website and it, and you just navigate through there and it'll it'll show you you know where to go to and um, how, how to get there yeah you seem uh i mean like just on the basis if somebody were to listen to this conversation alone you're very professional and very kind of stern in that point but i've also heard that there is a much much lighter side possibly a prankster side of chris cox when he feels like it yeah you know um I'm, I, I guess I'm hard to read, and and uh, and I probably do that for a purpose, a reason. But I have a dry sense of humor. I love, um, you know, I love good good joke and good prank, and and uh, you know I think that uh, I, well, one of the things I've got to be careful of, and is that I'm very passionate, and so uh, when it's about business, I'm really focused and passionate. But I've got to learn to, I've had to learn to lighten up a little bit and uh and um and still be able to focus you know so it's just something i've been very driven um growing up and i've got that kind of personality kind of an a-type personality but um if you see me at rancheros and and you know kind of a way it's you know i'm i'm a little bit a lot more relaxed and if somebody comes to the house and you know we've got a guest ranch up there in wyoming and you know, I, I've got, a, one of the things I'm really blessed with, I've got a lot of great friends and, um, how I treat people is very important. And if it takes, once you get to know me, it takes a little bit, but you know, that I mean the best. And, and that's why I never, I know when you walk by somebody and they, they don't say hello to you or, or say if somebody's seen me on TV and I walk by them without saying hello or whatever. And, it's so easy for that person to say, well, he's stuck up or, or, you know, he's, he, you know, he just fully himself. He's gotten success and it's all about money, you know? And I hear that a lot with different people. You know what, if it was about money, I wouldn't do what I'm doing. I'd find something else. It's about, it's about passion and it's about horses and people. And, and, um, you know, that's, that's really important. And that's why we started this foundation you know, to be able to connect people and horses together and children and help get them started off on the right leg. But, um, but yeah, I, I, uh, you know, when on TV, uh, I've had some of my producers say, Hey, you need to lighten up. You need to laugh. You need to smile. And, uh, I do need to do that. But when I'm talking about something, I talk with my heart and instead of my tongue. And so that's very important to me that, that it, it's got to come across that I mean it. And, I used to have a real stuttering problem growing up. My dad actually stutters as well. And, and once I got a horse in front of me and, and uh, the crowd didn't bother me at all because I was talking about something I believed in. And I started talking with my heart and not my tongue and I never stuttered. So oh, I think finding, finding something you believe in is very important, you know, and, and I always, I always ask my, my students, and these are grown men and grown women. 
before the end of the clinic, I'm going to say, what's your purpose in life? What do you think you brought to this world for? And that really gets you thinking, you know, what is your purpose? Well, why, why were you born? You know, how are you going to make this world better? And, and so once you understand you've got a purpose, you become more driven and focused. Because I think there's so many people that are just wandering around and bumping into the, the side of things and their rudder's missing, you know. I think you got to have a rudder to be able to go in a direction you want to go. That that got deep really quick, man. That was like... Yeah, I can tell a joke now, so I can break the ice. Okay. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Are we going to hear the joke or are you just going to leave, it, leave us hanging? <laughs> well, I don't know if I can tell my ranchero's joke on here, but yeah, no, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll leave that alone. Hey, I, so I jumped on your site real quick. Just going to make sure that everybody knows it's uh, www.chris.cox.com. And I'm on here and I was just. Uh, the dash, yeah, dash talks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm looking at your accomplishments. My goodness, man. Uh, raining, cutting, team roping. There's not much you don't do with a horse that you haven't been uh, awarded. That's for sure. Jeez. Um, just wanted to share that. I just, uh, pretty amazing stuff here I'm looking at. I, man, this is some good stuff, Chris. Well, I appreciate it. I'm, I've still got a long way to go, and I'm still a student. But uh, being inducted in the Cowboy Hall of Fame, uh, Texas Cowboy Hall of Fame, was a big honor for me as well. And, um, you know, I've, I've, uh, I've got a lot of wonderful friends and, and acquaintances. And, uh, you know, just here a few weeks ago, Billy Etbauer and his son came to, came to my clinic. And, uh, you know, what, a, what an honor it was to get to know him. I knew him, but I didn't know him that well. And now we talk about every week or two. And, uh, you know, it's the people, you know, he's a, you know, to me, he's a, a great example of a cowboy, a real, a real down to earth, a uh, cowboy. And, and, um, you know, it, you meet a lot of wonderful people and, and people that, that you can really learn something from, you know, surround yourself with great people. I think is very important. Couldn't agree more. Man, thank you for taking the time coming on here. This is when you get to hear people's lives and kind of how they've impacted something within the business and this whole podcast is wrapped around the 360 aspect of rodeo and clearly horses are a gigantic piece of that. Ah, this is just uh once again, always learning something. And I, I, I want to thank you for coming on, Steve, Riley, you guys got anything for Chris? This is man. a huge, thank you for taking the time to share that. I mean, the knowledge is just amazing, but the passion just really shines through it. Well, it's, I appreciate yeah. you guys asking me to be on here. It's an honor to, be, be on here and uh, share some information very cool man thank you very much chris that was awesome that guys hope you all have a blessed day and we'll talk to you soon we want to thank karen rosser from flying you rodeo and chris cox from chris cox horsemanship for taking time out of their busy schedule to appear on nfr extra and stay tuned for episode 54 when we sit down with the ceo of the Pro Rodeo Cowboys Association, George Taylor. Want to experience more of the NFR? Then visit nfrexperience.com. And we invite you to subscribe to NFR Extra on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you're listening right now. If you like what you've been hearing on NFR Extra, we would love it if you gave us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe. NFR Extra. All dirt. All rodeo. All year. Gotta make it out to Vegas Where the big boys roam With the rovers and the racers And the bulls and the browns And the ladies in the skin-tight wrangers And the cowboy hat